as we've um, <clears throat> mentioned quite a few times already, uh, the Satipatthana Sutta is really the foundation text for mindfulness practice and for the MBSR and MBCT programs. And it sets out the curriculum, if you like, with remarkable clarity and simplicity in a certain way and thoroughness. And as you're probably getting the message, we, we really recommend it to you as, um, you know, a, basically a lifelong companion for mindfulness practitioners and mindfulness teachers. You know, and really more and more to align, you know, one's understanding and one's practice with this text is a real pathway into depth. And near the start of the, the, the sutta, the Buddha um, basically has, a, has a, a short section where he sums up the whole path. He puts it sort of in one brief, concise statement, um, which sort of highlights the essential details of it. Um, highlights the, the, the four domains that we've been speaking about and also the really key attitudes to practice as we give attention to those four different ways of establishing mindfulness. And so, so this is that, this uh, section early on from the Sutta. What are the four Satipatthanas? Here... In regard to the body, a meditator abides, you could say meditator or practitioner, abides contemplating the body, ardent, clearly knowing, and mindful, free from desires and discontent in regard to the world. In regard to feeling tones, Vedana, He abides contemplating feeling tones, ardent, clearly knowing, and mindful, free from desires and discontent in regard to the world. In regard to the mind, or mind states, she abides contemplating the mind, ardent, clearly knowing, and mindful, free from desires and discontent in regard to the world. In regard to dhammas, as John told us today, that's not easily translated, but you could say in mental contents. In regard to dhammas, she abides contemplating dhammas, ardent, clearly knowing and mindful, free from desires and discontent in regard to the world. And as modern readers, we, we, can, we can sometimes be a bit impatient with all the repetitions in you know, the, the, the Buddha's suttas and, and sort of almost sort of gloss over them a bit. You know, we read them the first time and then when we hear them again, the mind sort of just says, yeah, I know, I know, I get that bit. Um, but actually, you know, maybe they're repeated for a reason. You know, uh, uh, and these, these, these terms, ardent, clearly knowing, and mindful, free from desires and discontent with regard to the world. You know, he's, he's suggesting in this sort of really concise summary that these are really key attitudes to bring to our practice. And so I'd like just this evening to say, a little bit about each of the first three of those terms, ardent, clearly knowing, and mindful. So ardent. I wonder what that word means to you, to, for some people for whom the word, okay, so for some people for whom 
uh, English as a second language, it may not mean much at all. In other words for it might be diligent or committed, even sort of determined in a certain way. Arden's quite a good translation because it suggests, you know, it's, it, it links with the English word sort of for burning, doesn't it? And, and actually the, the Pali word, atapi, which is A-T-A-P-I, the root of that also has the sense of heat to it. So it's, there's, a, there's a sort of heat, a, a sort of intensity of commitment, uh, and, and a sort of wholeheartedness of commitment that the, the Buddha is suggesting is really important, is really necessary. And after sort of three days or whatever it is that we've had on retreat, we can probably agree, can't we? It takes commitment to do this, doesn't it? it you know, Christina spoke last night about swimming against the tide. And sometimes it really feels like that, doesn't it? A few years back, I, I, um, I saw a cartoon in a magazine um, where a guy was, was kneeling down praying with his hands like this, but he was scowling. He was really sort of looking angry. And, he, and, and the, in the caption, he was saying, I asked you very nicely to make me a better person, but it seems like you just can't be bothered. And uh, I love that because, I mean, that's really not how it works, is it? It's really not how it works. <laughs> you know, it, it really does take commitment. It really does take diligence. It takes ardor, you know. And, you know, I think it's a helpful question just to reflect on, well, what... You know, what in other activities of, of life supports an attitude of ardor? You know, each of us will have things that we feel ardent about. You know, you know what, what, what enables that attitude of ardor in relation to gardening or politics or, you know, cooking or five rhythms or whatever it is that does it for you you know it's really worth inquiring you know what enables an attitude of ardor and when i when i ask that question it it feels like it's about really appreciating and connecting with the value and importance of of that activity why it really feels valuable to do, why it really feels important to do. And, you know, so that begs the question, doesn't it? Well, why is practice important? Why is this activity that we're giving so much energy and time to, why is it important? Pretty key question. You know, why is it important? Uh, and, and interestingly, the, the section before the one I just read um, in the sutta sort of, in, in a certain way, answers that. Christina quoted it the other day. It's, it's sort of almost how it starts. The Buddha says, meditators, practitioners, that's us. Yeah, that's us. This is the direct path for the purification of beings, for the overcoming of sorrow and lamentation, for the disappearance of dukkha and discontent, for acquiring the true method, for the realization of nibbana, I don't know how about you, but that I find that inspiring, you know. You know, that, that sense of this is this is the way to overcome sorrow and lamenta- lamentation. 
This is the direct path of the dissolving and the disappearance of dukkha and discontent that leads to this radical freedom of nibbana. The most direct path. The most direct way really to align our minds and hearts with the truth of the way things are. You know, and, and, and if we you know, reflect about you know, the many, many, many people over the millennia who have found this to be true, you know, who have found this path that we're practicing here with all its challenges as well as its nourishments, you know, who found this to be profoundly liberating. And, and really to see that, you know, to, to, to have this opportunity to, to understand this mind, this life that we're living in the light of these teachings is really something of great value, immense value. That the, um, the forest, the Thai forest master who was a um, really remarkable monk called Ajahn Mun said this, of all the many things that people value and care for in the world, the mind is the most precious. In fact, the mind is the foremost treasure in the whole world. So be sure to look after it well. To realize the mind's true nature is to realize Dhamma. So Dhamma is the truth of the way things are. To realize the mind's true nature is to realize Dhamma. Understanding the mind is the same as understanding Dhamma. Once the mind is known, then Dhamma in its entirety is known. Arriving at the truth about one's mind is the attainment of Nibbāna. Clearly, the mind is a priceless possession that should never be overlooked. You know what, what he's pointing to, what, what that section on the direct path is pointing to, you know, is, is a radical is a radical possibility that goes way beyond stress reduction, however valuable that is. You know? However valuable that is. You know, what we're talking about here is, you know, a profound, a gradual but profound awakening to the true way in which things are. A profound liberation as our understanding is us as our understanding deepens and we see more and more clearly and this is possible this is possible for us and so really to reflect you know why is practice important because it has that possibility as its aim that's where this path leads And that, in a certain way, highlights just how precious this opportunity of being here is. You know, it's it's uh, when one really reflects on it. It's actually there are a lot of conditions that have to be in place that enable this sort of thing to happen. You know, it's a pretty rare thing. Even even now, it's a pretty rare thing. You know, this is this is a a, a precious time. You know, and, and what is it really to live this day as if it mattered? You know, what is it really to, to live this sitting, this walking period, as if it really mattered? Because it does. So often we, often we have this sense of, you know, putting off, really giving ourselves until, 
well, sort of until what, you know? Until a, a better moment, you know? And, and this is, you know, this is part of the, the value of also reflecting on the transience of things, you know? It's one of the reasons why in this tradition, in the Buddhist tradition, there's the encouragement daily to contemplate death, you know, daily to be aware of death. Because it highlights how precious this time is, you know? It highlights what an opportunity this time is, you know. And, and, and it challenges us, given that none of us knows how long we have to live. You know, it challenges us to use our time well. To use our time well. You know, really to... to, to reflect, am I living and am I giving my time in a way that really reflects my deepest values, what I value most, what I most want to give my life to, <laughs> you know. And, you know, in the legend of um, Siddhartha, you know, the, the, the young prince who, who became the Buddha, um, you know, that's, it's so graphically dramatized, isn't it? You know, how he leaves the palace, so we're told, unaware of old age sickness and death, and then he has this profoundly shocking encounter with, with old age, sickness, and death. Uh, and it brings about this radical reorientation of his sense of what's important. He puts it like this. He said, Why should I, who am subject to birth, death, and change, go on seeking that which is subject to birth, death, and change? Effectively, why should I, why should I make some temporary experience the goal of my aspirations? And then he sees the fourth sight, which is a samana, a, a monk. And that, that gives him this sense of possibility, this sense of, of confidence that, that actually there is something more lasting, more uh, liberating. And what he describes is that the sense of old age sickness and death brought about a real sense of urgency. That, that The Buddhist word is samvega. Uh, and a real sense of, you know, this time must be used well. There's something to be done here. This time is to be used well. If I really want to discover what's true, discover what's liberating. And in a certain way, you know, we, we do need that. Uh, we need an intensity, a certain intensity to our commitment as we do this practice. You know, in the Zen tradition, they sometimes say, practice as if your hair was on fire. You know, or practice, John was telling me there's one version that says, practice as if your turban was on fire. So, for those who wear turbans, you know. And to be honest, I think this sort of sets in a certain perspective the, um, you know, the, the, the uh, sort of injunctions in some secular mindfulness teaching about non-striving, which can become a bit of a dogma, I think. Uh, and certainly, you know, that's not to deny that, you know, willfulness or forcefulness or trying to make something happen or a certain harshness, often with a sense of self-criticism in it, you know, that's, that's not going to help. We know that's not going to help. But what is it also to, to, to really know for ourselves that uh, to swim against the tide of our habits requires a deep commitment. It requires a deep determination. It requires a willingness to go beyond our comfort zone. 
And interestingly, in, in, in the, the, the Pali language, the root of this word atapi has, it, it, there are two meanings. One is, is the sort of asceticism and self-mortification that the Buddha practiced or Siddhartha practiced before he became enlightened, according to the legend, and, and, and which he said was not necessary for awakening. But that same word also refers to this quality of ardor. And it's, it's interesting just to, to, you know, to reflect on that in the light of you know, our own sense of, of, of what makes effort unhelpful. What, what sort of pushing is unhelpful? And often it is that self-mortifying, self-criticizing, you know, harshness that is really unhelpful. And is it possible to discover a commitment and a diligence and an ardor that doesn't involve that? That is about a devotion. Because when we look, we can see really that the art of ardor is about finding a commitment that can be sustained. You know, a diligence that can be sustained. That's not, you know, that's not out of balance in a certain way. It's, it's, a, it's, it's resourced and yet really committed. And interestingly, you know, the, the Buddha, you know, you'll be familiar with this, how the Buddha used the, the image of tuning a lute, which is like a guitar, you know, as a, as a metaphor for skillful effort and how we can tune the strings, we can tighten the strings too tight, yeah, so that they come close to breaking. And that's not very helpful. You know, but they can also be too slack, you know, and can be quite sort of floppy and not really making music. You know. So what is it, you know, in our practice, just to really have that awareness of of tuning the effort, tuning the effort, so there is a real sense of commitment, and there's also a sense of balance, because, you know. Our English word ardor, um, we also use about love. And I'm reminded of Christina sometimes saying, we need to fall in love with awareness. You know? We need to fall in love with being present. Or it's just so much more enjoyable if we fall in love with being present and with awareness and with investigating and discovering, with practicing, with awakening. <coughs> and, and as when one is in love, sometimes that involves a certain sense of play, you know, a certain lightness of touch, an attentive lightness of touch that is exploring and investigating uh, and really interested, not with a heaviness of duty and shouldness and must and all of that, but with a, a sense of, ah, oh, what is there to discover in this sitting, in this walking, in this moment? Because then our ardor can come from a, a sense of nourishment, you know? So important on retreat to be really clear about what is nourishing your heart. You know, as we go through these days today, these days together, what's nourishing your heart? You know, is it is it nature? Is it the time with the trees in the garden? Is it just really settling in the body onto the earth, feeling that sense of ground? Is it just the remembering of a sense of friendliness and kindness? Or is it a, a daily remembering of what you're grateful for? Just, you know, it's so important that our ardor, our commitment, our determination comes out of a sense of nourishment, comes out of a sense of resource. Gives us a, a big-hearted, a big-heartedness and a, a sort of stamina for the ups and downs of practice.
but then just you know finally on this this particular word of the three just to reflect well okay how can i ex- how can we express ardor in practice what does it look like if it doesn't look like having a a burning turban you know what does it look like you know f- for me and this is you know to some extent this is very personal for each of us you know, for me, when it, I'm on retreat, I, I notice that when I really can give myself to the schedule, you know, the, the rhythm of sitting and walking, the form, if you like, really to have that sense of, okay, I'm going to, rather than sort of negotiating with it, I'll go to that one and that one, and, you know, just that sense of, okay, I'm going to really join the rhythm of this. That, that can feel like it's very unifying for the heart, very supportive for a sense of nourishing commitment. And also the, the sense of, of continuity during the day, you know, so that, so that uh, the practice becomes more seamless. So that, you know, when, when one's, you know, in one's room, you know, do you notice that feeling sometimes when you walk into the room, oh, okay, I can relax, you know. And actually, what is it, you know, rather than doing that, just to, without, you know, feeling like some, you know, internal big brother is watching you, you know, just, there's just a sense of, okay, can I just let this be a, a time when I stay embodied, you know? When I continue just to f- be aware of the breath, or just to remember a sense of friendliness, or just not to go back into usual hurry mode, you know? In the bathroom. In your yogi job, you know, when we're going for a walk or a run, what is it just to have a sense of, okay, I'm just going to make all of this a field for, you know, interested play, the play of inquiry, the play of embodiment, the play of investigation and, and kindness. And sometimes it's, it is really helpful to have a sense of pushing our boundaries. And again, that look, will look different for each of us. You know, for, for some of us, it may be about getting up earlier or staying up later and practicing or when we're awake in the middle of the night, coming down and sitting or walking. You know, really saying, okay, I'm not just going to let the practice become domesticated within the, the sort of habits that conform. I'm going to have a sense of pushing boundaries. For other people, actually, pushing boundaries involves learning how to rest. You know, really how to rest, how to be nourished, how to be more spacious. So finding our own way, if we choose, and as best we can, to cultivate this sense of of commitment. And, And... you know, one other way we can do that is really by practicing this, the second of these terms, which is this term clearly knowing. Clearly knowing or clearly comprehending, one could say, or clearly understanding. And this refers to, to clearly knowing or comprehending both what we're practicing and what that practice is revealing. And, you know, that first piece, really to be clear about what we're practicing, doesn't that make such a difference? Don't you notice that? That when we really clarify the intention before we sit or at the start of a sitting or the start of a walking, okay, what am I going to choose to practice right now? Rather than just sort of sitting down in autopilot and just sort of being a bit aware and there's a certain sort of fog of intentions, you know, you try something for a bit and then you try something else for a bit. And, you know, it's so easy to go through a lot of sittings without that clear knowing of, or well, what am I choosing to practice right now? And it's something really to cultivate. Something really to cultivate as we sit, as we walk. You know, where am I going to place the attention? And what am I going to do when the attention wanders? Just to be really clear about that. You know, what are we going to practice during our yogi job? How are we going to make that practice? 
So helpful. Again, not out of a sense of ought, but out of a sense of actually it's just clearer. It's just more clarifying and nourishing and, and um, rewarding to be clear, to practice being clear. And to be clear also, well, what is this revealing? You know, when I, when I really pay attention to the breath, to the breathing, what does this highlight? What does this highlight? And, and um, you know, that, that is, that sense of, of noticing, and, and I'll, Yeah, maybe I'll, I'll speak about that piece now. You know, the, 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 as we've been saying, and this is, this is something we've said in the instructions, what does this highlight? Well, you know, partly, um, I'm going to go back, I'll come to that in a moment. Um, re- really because, uh, to make the point, that, that in a certain way, mindful observation on its own is not enough. It needs to be accompanied by, uh, what we observe needs to be understood in certain ways. We need to be looking out for these qualities of impermanence, of selflessness, of the importance of kindness. So that, if you like, there are are these two qualities, which in a lot of the um, Buddhist writings are, are put together, of mindfulness and clearly knowing. The, the, the uh, Pali words are sati, sampajana. And they make a compound, they make one word. And it occurs very, very often in the Buddha's discourses. So that mindfulness is yoked to this sense of clearly understanding, clearly knowing what one is experiencing. Or, or clearly being interested in knowing what one is experiencing. And sometimes that's... Uh, Quite, quite simple in a certain way. It's, it's simply knowing what I'm doing. As John Kabat-Zinn puts it, it's doing something and knowing that you're doing it. Yeah? Doing something and knowing that you're doing it. And, and in the Sutta, the Buddha speaks about that in terms of different activities. When going forward and running, the practitioner, the mindfulness practitioner, acts clearly knowing. When looking ahead and looking away, she acts clearly knowing. When flexing and extending his limbs, he acts clearly knowing. When wearing her robes and carrying her outer robe and bowl, she acts clearly knowing. When eating, drinking, tasting, he acts clearly knowing. When defecating and urinating, he acts clearly knowing. When walking, standing, sitting, falling asleep, waking up, Talking, keeping silent, using his mobile phone, he acts clearly knowing. You know, not that you're going to use your mobile phone here, of course. Uh, but just you know, that sense of whatever I'm doing, can I do it with that quality of awareness, that quality of knowing what I'm doing? Doing something and knowing that I'm doing it. And at a deeper level, it, 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 this really also involves thoroughly knowing. Thoroughly knowing the patterns of the mind. Thoroughly knowing the hindrances. So thoroughly knowing, as the Buddha puts it, when a hindrance is present, I know that a hindrance is present. When it's not present, I know that a hindrance is not present. I know how an unarisen hindrance can arise and how an arisen hindrance can be removed and how a future arising of the removed hindrance can be prevented. Do you get the sense of what that's saying? It's just the thoroughness of, of really getting to know the way the mind works. You know, all that Christina was describing last night in terms of these five hindrances of sensual desire, aversion, sleepiness, restlessness, sceptical doubt, really just getting to know them, you know, getting to know them, becoming, if you like, literate in the processes of our own mind. 
and in what helps to liberate it. And as I say, you know, the, the, the Buddha is clear that the different domains of, of, of mindfulness practice, of body, Vedana, mind states, and the dharmas, need to be understood in particular ways. And this highlights what contemplation involves. Because there's a word that crops up throughout the sutta. You know, what does contemplation involve? And I find it really helpful to see it as it's about practicing ways of looking at our experience. Ways of looking that free our experience. Does that make sense? Almost like we're practicing, you know, looking at our experience through particular lenses. So, for instance, this lens of impermanence. You know, and, and the Buddha in the Sutta really talks about contemplating the nature of arising in the body and the nature of passing away in the body. And the nature of both arising and passing away. So experiences arising and experiences passing away. Contemplating that moment by moment as body sense change, as Vedana tone changes. Yeah? And the nature of it. What, what, is, what are the conditions that give rise to experiences appearing and dissolving? Does, does that make sense? You know, it's that real investigation, looking through the lens where we, what, we, what gets highlighted is impermanence. Looking through the lens where what gets highlighted is this selfless quality that we've been talking about, you know, the body as the body. Not me, not mine, just body process. Vedana, as Vedana. Not me, not mine, just feeling tones, changing moment by moment. Pleasant, unpleasant, and neither. Mind states, as not me, not mine. Just states of mind and moods coming and going, like the weather. Yeah? And so this, this sense of, of, of learning to contemplate the mind by practicing ways of looking. Now, this is really integral to what this, this term clearly knowing means. You know, learning how to experience these domains of mindfulness in particular ways that liberate. And, and you know, he, he uh, describes how this leads to abiding independent, not clinging to anything in the world. And really to see that, you know, the more, at a, as John was saying two nights ago, you know, the more, at a, the more we know in our bones the experience of impermanence, the more there is a letting go. When it moves from just conceptual knowledge to really embodied knowledge, the more we know in our bones, body as body, the more there is a letting go, the more there is a freeing, the more there is a disentangling. So you're getting a sense of this, this term, clearly knowing, because it's, it's so key, I think. Really, the clearly knowing in terms of, well, what am I practicing at any moment? What am I choosing to practice? And then, you know, really letting the mindfulness highlight these particular liberating qualities that we can... We can uh, we can, we can cultivate the knowing of impermanence, selflessness. In a certain way, this, this term, clearly knowing, this, this Sampajana term, it's about you know, keeping, you can see, well, it's sort of all in the Sampajana. That's where the liberation comes. It comes not just from sort of just feeling the breath coming and going, however valuable and steadying that is, but really letting it highlight the true nature of things. You know? 
the way we sort of keep our, our practice intelligent. And I, I know, you know, in, in teaching the secular mindfulness programs, just how helpful it is to really get clear about the sampajana of the different practices. You know, to get really clear, well, you know, what are the intentions of the body scan? You know, what are the intentions? How, how is the intentions of the body scan different from the intentions of the sounds and thoughts practice? Or what is the raisin exercise really intended to highlight? <laughs> you know, so helpful. Because our teaching, of course, is really our te- how we lead the practices, how we lead inquiry, is profoundly informed by our clarity or lack of clarity in knowing both what those individual practices are about and what the larger intention of these programs is. You know, that's why you know, the good work that you're doing in, in studying and reflecting and you know, writing in some cases, you know, writing essays, um, you know, this is time very well spent because it will profoundly shape you know, how you teach and, and that sense of getting clearer and clearer about what the intentions are behind these practices. So ardent, clearly knowing, mindful. So much that could be said. I promised to finish by 8.30, so so much that could be said. What we can see, certainly, is that mindfulness is distinct from that sort of cognitive, if you like, the cognitive clear knowing, where we sort of thinking about what does this reveal. Mindfulness is also distinct from the investigative aspect that is investigating and feeling. Not that these are divorced from each other, but they're distinct from each other. It's also distinct from the the sort of absorbed focus of, of concentration. And yet, it's related to them all. And... I really appreciate the uh, description of mindfulness from the Venerable Analio, who's written a wonderful book on the Satipatthana Sutta that we'll no doubt be promoting towards the end of the retreat. But he, he describes mindfulness as an alert but receptive, equanimous knowing or observation or wakefulness. An alert, you can try it out while we're sitting here, you know. An alert, but receptive and equanimous, so that non-reactive quality, knowing, or wakefulness, or observation, that is informed by and informing the other factors of the path. Does that make sense? Can you feel that sort of sense of it? And, you know, it's really related, as, as John sometimes says, mindfulness comes with all its friends and relations. It doesn't come to the party alone. It comes with its friends and relations. And we can really see the Buddha distinguish between right mindfulness and wrong mindfulness. It's a bit salutary, isn't it, for those of us trying to teach it? Right mindfulness and wrong mindfulness. And we can see that what... In, in the Buddhist understanding, what makes, some, what makes mindfulness right mindfulness is really its embeddedness in the factors of the path, the factors of ethics, <coughs> the factors of effort, the factors of concentration, the factors of kindness and compassion, and right view. And so we can really see that, you know, what, what, in a sense, keeps mindfulness, right mindfulness, is the degree to which it's also informed by and related to these other factors. You know?
Does, does, does that make sense? You know, it feels so important just to see that. This provides, I think, such an important vantage point on the whole sort of explosion of interest in secular mindfulness, if we're going to use that term. You know, what makes, what makes a mindfulness class a mindfulness class as opposed to an attention training class? It's a really valuable reflection. And it, it also, in a certain way, highlights you know, the, the challenge of teaching in secular contexts where we don't... A, a lot of this has to be implicit, doesn't it? You know, we don't tend to talk about ethics. You know, we may not talk very much about concentration. You know, we may not even talk very much about body as body, though we probably talk about the body or the foot or the knee rather than your knee. You know, and that's the reason why. But that's all sort of implicit in a certain way. It's part of the challenge, isn't it, for you know, those who are, are teaching mindfulness or training to teach mindfulness in secular contexts is really that sense of really practicing embodying some of these values and embodying the values and orientations that we know make mindfulness liberating, embodying them in the class so that they're caught rather than taught. So really, I think it's a big challenge. Certainly we can see that, that mindfulness is a profoundly ethical practice. Uh, and that it's inseparable from kindness. It's inseparable from kindness. And... Uh, I'd like just, you know, given, um, given the time, I'd like just to, to speak about three particular um, roles that mindfulness can play. The first of which is guarding and protecting. In, in the Buddha's um, discourses, he, he uses quite a lot of different images for mindfulness. So he talks about mindfulness as being like a cow herd or like a watchtower or like someone keeping streams in check, keeping them within their banks. And also like a gatekeeper, a gatekeeper of a town who recognizes the sort of genuine citizens of the town and allows them to enter and also prevents those who are not entitled to enter the town, prevents them from coming in. And uh, we've spoken a bit about this, Christina spoke a bit about this last night, this sense of of really... Uh, Seeing, well, how can mindfulness be protective? The, the Buddha said, your worst enemy cannot harm you as much as your own unguarded thoughts. And a well-directed mind creates more happiness than even the caring actions of those who love you the most. So we really get a sense of, you know, the, the importance of guarding and what, you know, how is it that thoughts are harmful? Well, we can see that, that part of what happens is that unguarded thoughts proliferate, don't they? They proliferate and they build and they build a sort of associative patterns. And this is something we're going to talk about more as the retreat goes on, this, this process of papancha which means proliferation, and that is uh, one aspect of which is rumination, which, as we know, is the activity of depression. It's what <coughs> maintains depression, is, is, is the activity of rumination. And you know, part of the guarding function of mindfulness 
is really to protect the mind against that uncontrolled proliferation that can turn a tiny shard of negativity, a tiny shard of a, 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 a thought that has an unpleasant Vedana, can turn that into a ruminative relapse. And really, for each of us, you know, to, to explore, how do, we, how do we guard against that happening by being really careful, being really vigilant, particularly being vigilant at the sense doors. You know? We see a sight, and it's so easy to get caught up in the thought associations, isn't it? And those who do MBCT know the thoughts and feelings exercise on MBCT, where you know, you, 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 somebody doesn't wave to you, and you find yourself in a blind rage. You know? Or you find yourself you know, cancelling them from your address book. And it's because the thought has proliferated. There's been this sort of building going on. There's been this... this associative expansion of thought. And part of what this practice invites us to do is really to you know, come back to the more immediate sensations, the more immediate sensations of the body, of the breath, of sights, of sounds, of tastes, smells. And really see how protective that is for the mind. You know, and this, of course, is part of the way the body scan works. Part of the way in which these practices work is, is, is learning how to just be with the sensations. Without all the thoughts about the sensations. Without all the conceptual overlay that is where the, the additional dukkha gets added. It's where the second dart, it's how the second dart gets fired. So really to see this, this guarding quality of the mind, as, uh, you know, the guarding quality of mindfulness, as being about really coming back to the immediacy of sense experience and thereby res- restraining the proliferating tendencies of the mind, the proliferating tendencies of thought, and the Buddha gives famous instructions on this. He says, you should train yourself thus. In the seen will be merely what is seen. In the heard will be merely what is heard. In the sensed will be merely what is sensed. In the cognized will be merely what is cognized. This is the way you should train yourself. It's maybe familiar to us, but just that sense of, can we come back to that? Can we come back to that as a way of protecting the mind? Ajahn Sumedho, one of the monks of the Thai forest tradition, said, in our lives... The point is not to follow our hearts, it's to train our hearts. And I, I find that a very sort of helpful clarification, you know, in a certain way, that just that sense of can I train the heart rather than following all the sense impressions and sense desires? Can I just come back to simplicity? Can one bring the attention back to simplicity? So, one function or one role, guarding and protecting the mind through really learning how to guard the sense doors. Another, balancing, balancing the mind. Mindfulness asks the question, what does this need? It can be such a helpful question to drop into our practice, particularly when things are difficult. What does this need? Does it need more sense of grounding in the lower half of the body? Does it need more gatheredness, more focus? 
Does it need more effort? Does it need more kindness? Really to see that, you know, part of mindfulness's function is to is to encourage the mind into a place of greater balance and greater equanimity in the midst of experience. So protecting, balancing, and caring. So really John has spoken about this this sense of mindfulness as being inseparable from kindness. Inseparable from that that sense of really holding our experience with a friendliness. So that it's not about a cold stare of attention, it's about a warm holding of mindfulness. You know, the, the Buddha says in the Metta Sutta that John read, even as a mother protects with her life, her child, her only child, so with a boundless heart should one cherish all living beings. I, and I love that sense of you know, a, a, a parental care, a parental tenderness for the experience that we're having. So letting our mindfulness have this, this sense of care, this sense of friendliness, as an intrinsic part of how we hold experience. So, these three terms, ardent, is reflecting well, what supports an attitude of ardency, what really nourishes a sense of commitment, Clearly knowing both what we're practicing and that sense of what the practice is, is revealing about the nature of things. Mindful as this alert, receptive, equanimous wakefulness and knowing that guards and protects, that balances, that cares. And there's, there's one final consideration that I'd like just to offer because it's a consideration that can make a big difference to all three of these qualities and indeed to the whole of our practice. And it's really the question, for whose sake are you practicing? For whose sake are you practicing? You know, obviously we're practicing because we're, at one level, we're seeking to free this heart and mind from its patterns of confusion, its patterns of dukkha. But we, of course, can see that our practice cannot help but benefit others. And, you know, of course we see that it cannot help but affect the relationships that we're in at home, at work. But I wonder if you've come across that book called Connected, The Surprising Power of Social Networks and How They Shape Our Lives, which suggests with some very um, robust science that, that we, the influence that we have in our lives spreads a lot further than we can imagine through studying smoking and eating and uh, divorce and depression and happiness and altruism, they've shown that we are affecting and affected by our friends, friends, friends. And, and you know, that's uh, a piece of science that, that sort of highlights something that, that we can sense, that the ripples from our lives spread far and wide. And certainly we know that as mindfulness teachers, as therapists, as people you know, training to teach mindfulness, the quality of what we can offer to others is profoundly affected by the degree of our understanding, the depth of our understanding, the warmth of our hearts, and the 
extent to which we're really embodying these teachings. But it's one thing to to recognize that influence. But what is it to turn that into a motivation for practicing? Really to have that sense, may my practice be of benefit. May I practice in a way that is of benefit to those I know and those I don't know and to all beings. And, and as you're probably aware, you know, this, in, in later Buddhism, this becomes really the profound motivation for practice. This sense of, you know, may my life and my practice be of benefit for all beings, especially those who are suffering. And it can be a beautiful and motivating way to begin a sitting to begin a day of practice, to end a sitting, may in some way this practice contribute to the welfare of all beings. There's a verse that I I love from uh, a teaching called the Eight Verses of Thought Transformation from the Tibetan tradition, and it says this, with the thought of awakening for the welfare of of all living beings who are more precious than a wish-fulfilling jewel, may I constantly practice holding them dear. And just, you know, as we sit and walk here together over these days, just, you might like just to experiment with that sense of, okay, can I offer this practice? Not just to be for the benefit of this heart and mind, but in some way to be of benefit to life. You know, life that I know and the vast majority of life that I don't know. And how motivating that can be when we reflect like that. All uh, these themes of ardency, clearly knowing, mindfulness, and this, this wish for one's life to be of benefit to others. Sometimes, you know, we can have a real sense, a vivid sense of those. And other, other times it feels like what we're doing is watering seeds. We're watering seeds. And, and just to remember how valuable that is, And I'd like to end with some words of Henry David Thoreau, who said, in relation to this theme of watering seeds, he said, Though I don't believe that a plant will spring up where no seed has been, I have great faith in a seed. Convince me that you have a seed there, and I'm prepared to expect wonders. Let's just sit for a few moments.
Thank you for your attention. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.